1: Hey, how you doing, Podcats? Adam Buxton here. Delighted to be with you again. With Rosie. My beautiful dog. But it's really cold. What the... Like a few weeks ago I was saying, Ooh, it's nearly summer. I'm wearing shorts. I'm going to have a pina colada. I should put on some sunscreen or I'll get burned." And now I'm wearing my special ski jacket. It's nice to wear in these parts when it's uh, really bitter in the winter months, but I did not think I would be deploying the ski jacket as we are about to enter May, as Boris Johnson (laughs) has no doubt said. What? That doesn't even make any sense. All right, listen. Welcome to podcast number 41, which features today a conversation with stand-up comedian, actor, writer and podcasting behemoth, Mark Maron, host of the phenomenally successful WTF podcast, currently on episode 806, having started back in September 2009, when, I believe, Mark was suffering a kind of period of uh, career ennui and decided that giving the podcasting world a go would be a good thing to do. I'm shivering. <laughs> I am shivering. Don't blow wind at me. Oh, I got to put my gloves on. Oh. So Mark Marin though, Mark's uh, conversations with comedian friends and acquaintances in the early days of WTF quickly brought the podcast a great deal of popularity and it wasn't long before WTF was being talked about in American broadsheets and helping the whole concept of podcasting enter the mainstream consciousness. It actually took me a little while to get used to WTF. At that point, when I started listening a few years ago, I hadn't heard too many interview shows in which the personality of the host was as big or sometimes bigger than the people they were interviewing. I suppose I'd normally prefer a, a more BBC approach to presenting. Something fairly fairly neutral, not to say bland. But within the first few seconds of a WTF episode, you are hit by the full force of Mark Maron's personality. He calls his listeners, What the fuckers! How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, Nicks? What the fuck, buddies? I remember thinking, oh... <laughs> This might be a little too much for me. Pow, just coffee, I just shat my pants. That's one of Mark's sponsor slogans, for example. But as a fan of American comedy, it was impossible to resist some of the guests that he's managed to secure over the years. Norm MacDonald, Sarah Silverman, Louis C.K., Kristen Schaal, Judd Apatow, Sandra Bernhardt, David Sedaris, Tim and Eric... The list goes on. I mean, he's talked to pretty much everyone in the world of American comedy. Maron always manages to get something interesting out of the people he talks to. And after a while, I began to investigate episodes featuring people I didn't know much about or never thought I'd be interested in. People like Bobcat Goldthwaite. I knew who he was. He was the guy with the weird voice in the Police Academy films but who knew he'd be so interesting or would have done so much interesting work until I listened to him talking on WTF and uh, it was also my introduction to people like Eddie Peppertone and Ron White and then there are the actors and the directors and the musicians that Marin has spoken to and in 2015 Mark sat in his garage in Highland Park, Los Angeles where he records WTF and he talked... To President Obama, another watershed moment in podcasting history. Now, there have been periods when I've felt over marinated. Sometimes I have to take a Marin break and just uh, deal with my own insecurities and personality flaws and talk about them on my podcast. Perhaps because I have that peculiar podcast feeling of knowing Mark Marin so well, it was hard not to feel that I was being judged as unworthy when my attempts to get in contact with him were met with total silence over the last few years. But um, I guess since doing my own podcast, I've realised how hard it is to respond to every attempt people make to reach out. And uh, and of course, I've come to realise that it wasn't personal with Mark. He was just busy. In the end, it was my friend Louis Theroux who got Mark's attention for me a few months ago. So thank you very much, Louis. In person, Maren was far more straightforwardly polite and easygoing than I'd expected, but no less intelligent and charismatic. Unsurprisingly, we talked a fair bit about podcasting, but we also covered farting in bed. You're welcome. Uh, Getting hustled in Marrakesh, which I should point out is a very lovely place with wonderful people, not just um, tourist hustlers. We talk about stand-up comedy, Mark's new acting role in the Netflix show Glow, in which he stars with Alison Bree, and we get an insight into Mark's musical tastes via some of the songs he puts on his playlists. All that is coming your way now. Here we go. <laughs>
2: So this is my first kombucha. I can't drink those because they taste boozy. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, as a guy that used to drink, I can taste a little... You, you feel a little alcohol bite in there? Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, something slightly fermented. Yeah. It's not that nice. No, I don't... I, I don't know. I, I think they're... I don't know. Oh... It's got a horrible aftertaste. That's your first kombucha, yeah. Like it seems to have a purpose, or people believe that it does something. Is it a probiotic? I'm not even sure what it is. It's a
1: bubbly probiotic
2: tea. Yeah, I get my probiotics from kimchi or sauerkraut. Mm -hmm. But I don't know the credibility. I don't know the validity of all that. I've never been that fucked up. Yeah, to where I'm like, oh my god, what's wrong with my guts? I remember you talking about
1: your um, wind issues once, farting a few years ago. (laughs) And I feel as if I'm going through a a similar thing at the moment. Wind. Wind issues. Building up in the night so that it becomes uncomfortable and you wake up and I think it puts pressure on your, this is a good way to start a conversation, isn't it? Um, It puts pressure on the bladder. Oh yeah, it's horrible. It makes
2: you feel as if you need to go to the toilet. Right. Well, you probably have to go to the toilet too. Yeah. yeah, I mean, how old are you? 47. Yeah, it's going to start happening. Sure. You know, uh, but the uh, the wind issues—you um, have to let it out. Is there an issue at home you can't freely wind yourself? No, no, no. It's all good. If my girlfriend is awake, it startles her so much. It's like a spider. <laughs> is in the bed yeah it's ridiculous every time why I, because of the noise yeah and it, it sort of you know bounces off the springs in the mattress a little so there's it the, but she's literally like <laughs> oh like it, it can't be that terrifying yeah. every time and then it gets kind of funny and then you're uh you're actually too close to that person yes <laughs> the relationship is over <laughs> you need some mystery yeah
1: so I'm going to set
2: the scene a little bit. I'm here in, uh, what what part of LA is this? This is Highland Park. We are in Highland Park in a building. It houses a coffee shop, a small bookstore, a record uh, label of sorts downstairs. And up here, there's a few random businesses. There's a music attorney down the hall, real estate operation next door. Some guys who do something on computers, I don't know what, but it's uh, towards the hipster side and not towards the... That looks devious side. Yeah. And then down the hall, there's a door that has many locks on it that says high voltage. Don't enter like a very scary door because there's a, a, an antenna, an AT&T, or no, I should know because I had a fight with them, on the roof. There's a cellular tower on the roof. Oh, and you were getting interference. Yeah. Like buzzing and on these, com- uh, me and my dumb luxury problems, my dumb hipster problems. Yeah, my my old Marantz receiver was picking up like Wi-Fi noise. Yeah, and I was furious because I really had this fantasy about this office being sort of um, a meditative place, a, a place where I could come and listen to records and work. And the fact that I was couldn't get rid of that noise, I was obsessed with it. Yeah, of course. But I, you know, I, I apparently made some noise that went pretty far up over there. And you got a result. That's really very satisfying. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an odd position to be in that, you know, if you have a presence, and I'm not that big a star, I'm not that big a celebrity, but I'm annoying, and I have a few Twitter followers, and I do have a live platform, and, you know, having something to complain about for me is, is good entertainment for others, and uh, it sort of went on that way, but then, like you know, they'd send teams of people over here to try to resolve it, like three or four, you know, you know, with machines yeah. and going in and out of there and up on the roof. And one team came in and said, like you know, I don't know who you are, but uh, this one pretty high up. Good. So it's it's good, but it's I I wish it was for you know a more important reason.
1: Yeah, I know what you mean. Well, you, you yes, you think God, if I can harness this kind of power, then I should be yeah. solving.
2: Uh, well, at least you know like, you know using it. Well, even politically now you you, you know there's a, a level to it that you know unfortunately they they're, everything's so insulated into bubbles that you know you can preach to your own choir and hip people to what's happening. But, you know, usually they know or they understand or they're like, yeah, right on, brother. But then on the other side of that, you have people from the other bubble whose sole job in life is to attack people with the alternate viewpoint. And it's just, you know, how much of your day do you want to spend tweet fighting with Nazis? I don't know. I got got other things to do. And I never thought that, you know, we'd be living in a time where that's an issue. Like, yeah, these Nazis are annoying. But, yeah, I mean... you, when you realize you have a platform, there is a moment where you're like, can I use it for something other than complaining to airlines and, <laughs> and getting, getting the buzz out of my uh, receiver that's yes. outdated? But the funny conclusion of that story was that these two young guys came and they were really these two kind of nerdy hipster dudes were like, yeah, we're, we're going to figure it out. And yet they really wanted to solve the problem. They like saw. It was, I like that they liked their job. They weren't just guys with tool belts. And they went up there and they laid down a copper mesh, you know, which is how you insulate that kind of right. noise. You make sort of a Faraday cage or partial one. But they got some high end copper mesh and laid it down up there and solved the problem. Yeah, I, I was very uh, very happy about that.
1: So you didn't have to end up like Michael McKean and better call Saul wrapped in uh,
2: silver foil well you go down that rabbit hole yeah. you know because there's always schools of thought and people who are sensitive to things like aspartame mm-hmm. um, vibrations frequencies I'm sure that exists I think there is a hypersensitivity but I don't think I'm one of those people generally speaking yeah. but you start doing a little research you're like I gotta I gotta put copper all around the office the whole office got to be done you should never do research well it's it gets a little scary the rabbit holes available yeah. are many but i did get some stuff to make a faraday cage because i thought it was ridiculous because i thought like because there's these survivalist websites where if you want to put your phones in a box where they are completely untraceable you got to build sort of this cage a box that's you know copper insulated and then there's another insulation so i got all the equipment to do that because i was going to fashion a a top a box that i could put over my receiver right but around the same time that that was happening i was having the uh the counter feeling of uh what the fuck am i doing (laughs) what what am i doing i mean this is too difficult yeah but i and then people were like well you can live with it i'm like i can't i'm not gonna be able to have the office because the obsession will prove to be overwhelming it'll make me it'll, it'll serve the opposite purpose it'll be i'll dread going there because i can't play the records that people send me that i usually rarely like yes
1: that's great that you got guys that were into solving the problem. That's you would think that that would be the way most people approach their jobs. Like that's the most enjoyable way to work, isn't it? To actually take an interest in an active. Pleasure. Would
2: you think that? I would never think that. Sadly, I, I think that you know most people take what they can get and live through it and hope they can make ends meet.
1: Yeah, I suppose that's true. But it
2: is surprising to find a job like that, which would seem like a mundane job, where, where people are sort of like, well, we're going to troubleshoot this thing. Yeah. It's nice to see people engaged.
1: I just remember that when I was doing menial jobs, working in restaurants, I was a busboy and things like that. The way to make it more fun was to engage with the process of trying to be good at it. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. work out little systems and routines to... Right, to be the best damn busboy on your ship. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. And it made life a lot more fun. And that's not to say that I
2: was the best busboy. You know what makes busboy fun too? Weed. Uh, (laughs) Back in the day when I was working the grill at restaurants, it was always good to... Get a little buzz on. Yeah. Cigarettes were nice too. You're working towards a cigarette break. The rewards are far and few. So I guess you do have to make them for yourself.
1: You could work while you were stoned. Sure.
2: Yeah. Uh, a bit. It, it was hit or miss, but it was a sort of a slightly uh, hippy dippy restaurant. The, one of them was that I worked at for a couple of years. The other one, I, I don't know if I got that stoned, but there was a period there where, yeah, you could get a little edge on, you know, and, uh, and make sandwiches. Mm. Would you go on stage quite wasted? I've been on stage on most drugs. Right. Um, and you can focus.
1: You're not a total disaster. I, I don't area. know
2: focus is the word function, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I never was... I, I, I couldn't do it that drunk. Yeah. But I would do it at different phases of sweep deprivation from doing coke. And I'd go on stage kind of coked up. But, you know, I watched tapes of it. It wasn't good. Right. Okay. You know, there was a mania to it. But being stoned on weed was okay except it kind of uh amplifies a, a, a weird part of your charm you know like the the thing that happened with me on weed is that you know you you sort of act so entertained by yourself uh-huh. that people are like well he seems to be having a good time maybe we should get on board but I was not a guy that had to get high yeah. or drunk before I went on ever. I've known plenty of guys like that, but I was not that guy. Yes. It was usually like, oh, I guess I'm still fucked up. Or I'm, I'm tired. I haven't slept all night. i going to need to do a little something before. Yeah. But it's been a long time now. It's all getting very far behind me.
1: So you were with Louis last week, my friend Louis Theroux.
2: Yeah, yeah. I thought that was a good time. It was really good. You liked it and you're his friend. You you always get stuff out of people that I,
1: I don't hear anywhere else. And there was things Louis was talking about. I've known him since I was, you know, 10 or something. Oh, really? But I didn't know an awful lot of... What he was talking about really, yeah. Because you're if you're friends from that far back, you don't really talk about certain
2: things, or it doesn't occur take, to you, yeah. You just sort of take each other as you are, yeah. and yeah, why would you get some background exactly if you have that much background? You don't really you right. figure you got enough, yeah.
1: I've never asked him about what he studied at university,
2: right? And it was fascinating to hear him
1: talk about Galileo, and uh, like he, I knew he did history.
2: I found that what ultimately happened with that interview is it was interesting because. I did something that I don't often do. Occasionally, I'll do it, but it always leaves me vulnerable to a particular type of uh, of trolling uh, that isn't necessarily vindictive or hostile. But you know, heading into that, I felt like I knew him because I had talked to him like this for a long time. That's right. He interviewed you for yeah for something documentary, yeah. But like I I got, you know, I felt like we spent time together, you know, and, you know, he gave me a book and, you know, we, so I felt like I knew him a little bit or I got a sense of him, but I didn't really know his work and I don't have a a tremendous amount of time, you know, but I watched the new movie and uh, I I read about some of his other movies, but I'm not, it's not that I'm not a fan. I just, you know, I did not make the time, you know, and you can't backload. Or fake fandom. You can't like, you know, you can do research. Because what happens is when I say like, when he asked me, do I know his stuff? And I said, not really, you know, but I, I feel like I know you. And, and, and that for me is a better situation. But it was an immediate place for people to go like, oh, man, you should have done your homework. You, you really blew it. And I'm like, I don't think so. Because, you know, the work is there. And if you are someone who listens to my show, which I assume these people weren't, you, you know that that rarely is a way to go the the sort of uh you know album by album movie by movie thing i've done it with some people who have been around for 30 or 40 years where you have a, a massive timeline to a history mm. but with louie you know outside of you know taking the piss out of him a little bit and that we it very quickly became because i think he's funny and he pretends like he's not so like i had this natural weird we became this comedy team very quickly yeah And I think he was in on it, but he was pretending he wasn't. Oh, definitely. And as you say, I think
1: anyone who's listened to more than a couple of episodes understands that there are times when it's more of a career overview and there are other times when it's just a conversation with an interesting
2: person. Rarely do you can you talk about someone's work, especially if it's outside of them, you know, Mm. like if they're a filmmaker or a musician most of them don't really want to do that.
1: That's the thing, isn't it? And it's and the more established people are, and the more well known they them, don't. The last thing
2: they, they want it. to do is yeah. reel through because they've said it all before. They've said it all before, you know, in different variations of press junkets and whatnot. So it was just, you know, I didn't react to any of this because I I knew I left myself vulnerable to that, and I know I was prickly, but I wasn't prickly in a in a real way. You know, I I like him a lot, and I get a kick out of him. So you know, sometimes a little you know, uh antagonism with somebody who can take it and give it back is a good time. I I'd loved it. Yeah, no, it was very enjoyable. Because I
1: remember him telling me the first time he met you, Louis was the person that got me into your stuff. Oh yeah? Yeah. He's he's one of those people, uh what would Gladwell call them? Um Mavens connectors, I don't know. Oh huh. Who who is good at um pointing out good stuff and hooking you up with interesting yeah. things. He got me into Radiohead, he got me into Oh, that's um, a good one. Yeah. And I remember years ago, him saying, oh, you should listen to this guy, Mark Maron. He's got a really interesting thing going. This podcast is unusual. Then when he met you to do that filming, he said, yeah, you took the mick out of him a little bit. And he was a little bit like rattled when you said, um, you know, are you famous in the UK? Because no one knows who the fuck you are here.
2: And I remember him telling me that. And it was funny hearing you talking about it. Well, it's weird with me and... uh, for me to understand, yeah, I'm a, a hyper-emotional person no. in a lot of ways and pretty wide open. And that that is not the British way. No. A, you know, it, it is sort of opposite. So, like, occasionally it's been kind of an obstacle for me in appreciating, you know, British comedy, uh, British, you, you know, stuff. Because, like, yeah, you know, I need to feel the person. You know, I, it's just something I need. And it's you know, culturally a difference. You know, but with him there's a sensitivity to them. Like sometimes I think I sound a little ignorant of uh, a lot of, uh, you know, stuff from, you know, comedy from the UK and stuff like that just because it just wasn't my stuff. Even Monty Python, as much as I appreciate it, is not my go-to thing. No. You know, but as I talk to people, Irish guys are a little different because they, they seem to wear their heart on their sleeve a little more. Like, uh, you know, when I've talked to Brent Morin and uh, Dylan, Dylan Morin, um, and, you know, like I get their thing and I've talked to a couple of those guys, Mm. but then I talked to Stuart Lee, who I like, but I had to sort of like dig in, you know, I had to really begin to understand what makes him so special and what makes him uh, provocative and and far above and beyond, you know, regular comics, Mm. but he's a very bright guy. Yeah you but know.
1: he is he is quite reserved and it's interesting when you when you do come up against especially those Brits and I'm always interested like how's he going to deal with this one Tom York especially who's someone I know a little bit who, I get, that was a good one yeah and you did really well with him but it was funny hearing at certain points you would hit a wall with him like uh, when you talked about his parents i think for example yeah it's definitely and then there it's
2: clang the shutters come down and it's like nope you're not going to But go it was but i at least he talked you oh, know yeah. like if, if if we hadn't had politics to talk about at the beginning i really don't know how that would have went yeah. it was fortuitous in a way because i was supposed to the deal was i would interview him and Flea together all oh, right and Flea was ill So I'm I'm there with Tom and I
1: yeah they were doing the atoms for peace thing right
2: and I didn't know what to expect but like I'm personally disarmed usually and not really looking to have them know what the question is going to be or answer questions that they've answered me field questions that are familiar to them I just don't do it so the idea that we sort of got off on politics really kind of was like a great icebreaker. I'm glad we didn't stay there for the whole hour. But, yeah. But Louie's different, and I think Tom's a little different. But yeah, Stuart was, you know, high-minded. You know, like, he had thought about things, which mm. was fine. Like, I don't have to do that kind of interview. I don't need my emotional needs met all the time. But a lot of times, I don't know a lot about the person I'm talking to, and I've kind of kept it that way. I, I like to have an overview, you know, in my mind to work against. Like, I like if I have to interview Neil Young, you know, i got to— You want to fill your head up with the music, but ultimately it doesn't serve anything. And if you don't, if you're not a a fan, like a guy who's like, oh, you you know, I love everything you've ever done, which I think is a liability sometimes. Oh, yeah. Because I think it was a liability with Keith Richards, you know, which was really a fan's conversation. Uh But with someone like Louie, it's good because then you just sort of like you're not burdened by this relationship you know, with their work that's going to stop you from, you know, engaging with the person.
1: Yes, exactly. Louis is good as well because he is, he's not bothered by um, confrontation or...
2: or... He's, he loves it. He's very funny in yeah. confrontation.
1: And he, you know, that's his bread and butter, really, when mm-hmm. he's doing his things. He's very rarely visibly rattled. But, he,
2: I think that's the funny part of him. And I think that maybe that's why I wanted to conf- be confrontational the whole time yeah. because I... Uh, <laughs> I think he's very funny when he's uh, ignoring confrontation that's happening in in the moment.
1: I'm the opposite. I can't deal with any kind of confrontation at all without it showing very clearly. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of British people who are probably like that. Oh, yeah? Uh, Yeah. You know, the voice kind of goes, oh, a little bit wobbly and the... um, (laughs) Her breathing goes um, (laughs) because your heart is uh, pounding so much. So you're trying to be forceful. um, But it's pretty clear to the other
2: person that you are in trouble. And the face starts twitching and all that. I guess, like, I don't know if I'm innately good at it. But having done comedy for more than half my life, I can, you know, I I know how to shut things off. I wish I
1: did. Because, I mean, I've been on stage not as much as you, but... For uh, you know, twenty years or so.
2: I saw it all as a confrontation right. fr- from the beginning. Right. Like, like w- I was not going out there to loving people who I'm going to entertain. I'm like, I, from the very beginning, I'm like, it's going to be a fight.
1: That's probably the best way to go about it.
2: How long have you been doing comedy?
1: Twenty years, twenty five years or so.
2: I mean, d- initially on TV,
1: making a kind of um, Wayne's World but real homemade show
2: oh yeah yeah you're one of those guys who did the the weird thing for yourself that became popular
1: yeah it was like youtube before youtube Mm -hmm. and then uh, made a very conscious decision around about 2005 that i would go on stage because i was surrounded by people in the comedy world who who were proper stand-ups kind of thing i thought i should i should do a little bit of that so now i do more but it's not straight ahead stand-up what i do and and it's certainly not about conflict but i heard you talking to martha plimpton
2: oh that's stage fright
1: yeah yeah and, and her technique which i found very interesting was to have total contempt or at least to cultivate some version of contempt for the audience mm-hmm.
2: it w- wasn't necessarily real but she was telling herself like right
1: these people are worthless
2: <laughs> yeah even though she it helped her yeah it calmed her i guess that's what what did it for me i think for me it was more of like i think i fought against my own emotional needs that i needed to create a confrontation to trust people or, or at least make a boundary, you know? And I think a lot of my early stand-up was like that. It was just sort of provocative uh, or not provo- provoking. It was not light entertainment, you know, it was offensive on some level and, and very intense. And, you know, I, I had big things on my mind, but I, I also think that was my way of just not showing myself. Mm-hmm. And I, like I do it all the time. Like I'm the kind of guy. Like I think you know, if I'm walking down the street and I'm looking at somebody, I expect a relationship there. Some even if it's for a second, you know, like you know, a connection. And a lot of times, like if you're that kind of person, you're kind of an emotional mark. You know, I'm the kind of guy, or I used to be more, more. You know, if there's a lunatic on the street or a hustler. They're innately going to be like, that's my guy. I can get some money or I'm, I'm going <laughs> to tell him my theory. Yeah. And, you know, like now I, I've had to consciously learn to not hold eye contact walking down the street, to not show that emotional vulnerability or need to, you know, figure out a nice hard stare. Mm. That to, you know, to sort of like, you know, no, not getting through. Have like you ever to-
1: been to Marrakesh?
2: No. Mate, you would have a hard time. <laughs> yeah, boy, that's a, I'm going to go.
1: Because I feel I'm a little bit the same as you and you want to, yeah, it's all about making connections with people. It's why you're so good at doing your show, you know, because you're able to forge a connection with pretty much most of the people you meet in a very short space of time. And it unfolds very entertainingly thereafter. But um, you go to Marrakesh. I'd never been before. And me and my wife went recently for a weekend. I'd been told, you know, oh, it's overwhelming, it's amazing, it's a culture shock, etc. It's all of those things, but it's all about the local people there kind of getting what they can from you. You're supposed to just roll with it. and not The haggling and whatnot? The haggling and... See, I would pay to not do that. Yeah, same so here. Do, let's just... Yeah, how much? No, I don't want to do the thing. Just- as soon as we stepped out of our hotel on the first night, we'd been in Morocco less than an hour and we go and we say like where's the way to the, the the big square with all the stuff going on and the music playing and all the stalls we're told by the people in the hotel oh it's out and round to the right so we head out there but as soon as we step out this guy comes up and goes oh no you can't go down there that's prayers have begun i'll i'll show you the way i'll oh, show no. you the way now you're and immediately like the night before we'd been watching a thing about um the shootings in Tunisia horrible shootings that happened and my wife was like We're going to Morocco. That's pretty high on the terror alert list, isn't it? And sure, you know, it's, yeah, high terror threat over in Morocco, but it's all relative. I was like, don't worry. It's fine. So we're being led down this literally dark alley by this guy five minutes out of our hotel. My wife's looking worried and thinking, oh, no, we're going to get kidnapped. Anyway, he shows us where the square is. It's all fine. Very smiley. The whole process took a minute, two minutes. And then he holds out his hand and he's like, "Some money, please, some money." And it's like, "Okay, fine, <laughs> yeah. fair enough." So I give it. I reach in my bag. I haven't got much small change. I give him about two dollars worth of uh-huh. money, right? In a coin, quite good for just showing someone directions uh-huh. for less than a couple of minutes. He's not happy with it, and he's pointing <laughs> and he's, "No, no, no, this is not very much. Please, more, more, more." more. So I give him another one. So he's get, he's got like two, four dollars, four quid basically. It's yeah. more or less the same these days. He's like, no, this is not much money. No, no, no. Please give me more. Uh-huh. I was like, mate, that's a lot of money, even in the UK. Yeah. Especially for showing someone just where the thing He said that? Yeah. Yeah. But he wasn't there. He's like, no, no, no. Paper. Give me paper money.
2: Paper. Oh. How, how much are you in for? I,
1: I gave him like six pounds worth, six dollars worth, mm-hmm. thereabouts. Was he happy with that? No. He was not happy with it. And he just looked pissed off. He, looked, he gave me a look like, you fucking people, you know. I was gutted, you know, because I... You thought
2: you were doing the right thing.
1: I thought I was doing the right thing. I want to be... I'm in a foreign country. I want to be respectful
2: and friendly and do the... You know. Yeah, and you know, the thing is, it's like you can't win because now you walk away feeling like that. And if you had given him... 10 or 20 quid you would have walked away going like i'm an idiot i mean i felt like that
1: exactly already it was like god
2: at six you felt like yeah i did i mean if someone i know it's totally
1: different um but if someone in the street asked me to do something for them like
2: i don't know i would i would bend over backwards within reason to help another human being i feel i hope as long as you're not being hustled yeah it's a tough it's tricky because like you know if someone needs help you really have to gauge it in that moment. Like, uh, you, you don't want to spend a day with somebody, no. you, you know, running errands or whatever.
1: That's the contract, though, isn't it? And and when people take the piss like that, it really
2: pulls the rug from under you. Well, yeah, I think uh, some people I know, some people have a policy, you know, a personal policy. You know, if anyone asks me for money, I'm going to give them a dollar, whatever uh-huh. it is. And you just, you know, hold the hold the line yeah. without the sort of like, what are you going to use it for? You know, what's your... Uh, and then some people, they don't engage with the hustle. I mean, there used to be a hustle in New York. There was you know, anything that, you know, when you're approached and it involves a, you know, a, usually a, a bus station or, you know, I need a, a, this amount of money to get to just to get the thing out of the shop or to, you know, if it, like there's a, my mom's in hospital. I've got it, yeah, A lot of times you can kind of like, no, okay, I, I know this show. And, you know, and then you have to decide there was another, there was a speaker hustle for a while here. And I almost got my ass kicked calling a guy out. He's usually two dudes. And the hustle was like, hey, man, you need speakers? You know, I, I work at delivery. I deliver, you know, high-end stereo speakers. And I got a couple in the truck that I, you know, that aren't accounted for, you know, for a couple hundred bucks. And, you know, you wouldn't be able to look at them or nothing. And, you know, you pay him a couple hundred bucks and you have these shit speakers that, you know, they may, have, they were probably speakers, but they were like, you know, garbage. Yeah but it was they were around it was a, a hustle and i remember after not doing it once or twice because you just say can i look at them what kind are they and they can't answer any questions but then there was a time where i got hit with it again and i'm like i know what you guys are doing and the guy was like oh yeah do you you want to do something about it i'm like nope I'm walk away good luck with your speakers
1: hosted a uh, an american version of nevermind the buzzcocks Hmm. that's a show that i've been on several times in the uk and had uh good times and bad times on but you always whenever you mention it it's with a kind of uh withering
2: well i didn't i didn't like it's i'm not the guy for a game show i have a i didn't even understand the game really i kind of understood it you know there were no real stakes it was more of a Improvisational. It was all sort of setups. For, yeah, for Just, riffing. Yeah, right. Riffing on on the subject of music, which they presumably thought you'd be well suited to because you're a. I guess you know. I, yeah, but I wasn't that. It was more pop music, and you know, it was through VH1s. So they were, wanted to run their kind of classic hits format at that time through there, and you know, I was in a pretty desperate situation. I, was, you know, I was going through a divorce, my first one. I didn't have any money. I was really broke. And uh, they liked my attitude. I, you know, for years before I really settled into myself, you know, which happened relatively recently, you know, I just had a certain intensity, a certain edge, but it wasn't really intentional. So you'd get these people that are like, "We get Mark. He's the guy for this. He's like the, the cranky guy, or he's got that edge." But like, it was really me just being me. So it was not controlled in any way. So they thought my tone would be good for that show. And, I, and I, there was a tremendous amount of shame involved in the idea of me hosting a game show of any kind, even if it was a comedic show if, for me personally. But, uh, but like we shot, I guess, a dozen of them maybe all at once. And I, I was violently ill during the shooting. Like I had the runs. I lost like 10 pounds and I was like emaciated and sick the entire shoot.
1: Oh no, that was just a coincidental bout of food poisoning or something. Or no, I, th-
2: I think it was directly relative to my related. lack of desire. To
1: oh, as <laughs> your body telling you, get kind out. Of.
2: Yeah, and uh, but I did get a lot of good suits. <laughs> I st- I still probably have a couple of them from that show. Uh, and no one watched it. No one saw it. It was as if it didn't happen. There's no evidence of it anywhere. There might be. I think there's a picture, but I don't. know. If you looked online, you couldn't find an episode. Uh huh.
1: Was the idea in your head always to try and be on TV? Is that considered the optimum career path for a comic? I don't think here? so. I don't
2: no. think it was my idea. It, it was my idea as a comic. And, you know, as time goes on, you realize, well, there are jobs comics do. You know, they they host things. Game show host is, is a job a comic can do. You know, if you're not doing stand-up, you either write or you host or you have a show built around you. Or, you know, eventually if you write, maybe you become a producer or whatever. But, you know, these are the ways that people that start in stand-up find their way in show business, you know, if they can't cut it or or decide smartly to not put all their eggs in the one basket of stand-up, which is, you know, a fairly brutal life that I think... Um, it's the brutal basket. It is. It's a brutal basket. But, you know, the people that do it, like, you know, I have a lot of personality liabilities that don't really enable me to to function in the regular world or to even think about writing for somebody else or producing a show or acting. Because I was so uh, ungrounded as a human that stand-up was the only place where, you know, I could do something. And it was very immediate and it was terrifying and, like insanity-making, but completely consuming. You know, I would write things down and I'd go up there and do it. it. It defined me. Like, you know, I'm doing this. And I know exactly how to do this. I write things down here or I think of a thing and then I get up there. So at the beginning, it's a sort of like, how do I get up there as much as possible? Mm. But it, the plan was to be a great comic. The plan was to, to find my point of view and to say what I wanted to say at different points in my life, to own that space. And it was completely selfish endeavor, which suited me because you know, publicly I was sort of a you know, cocky, aggravated person that was difficult and you know inside i you know i was just trying to figure out how to uh, be whole or to you know complete to my personality whatever was lacking to find myself and to to put it in more you know m- new agey terms to figure out who i was yeah and i chose that i, I mean that's something i i've retrofitted onto my journey but yeah. i think it, it is what it is And one of the things that Louis was interested in when he
1: originally interviewed you was the kind of problems that surely must come along when you are talking about your life in such a revelatory way, when you're talking about your relationships and things like that. And it is something that I still think about when I listen to WTF, like, have there been significant problems thrown up by some of the
2: things you say in in public, as it were? Yeah. Well, Silverman put it well, You, you know... I don't remember exact quote, but a lot of times it's if it's going to come down to, you know, the relationship or the joke, the joke is probably going to win out. And there have been times in my life where I would do jokes out of town that I would you know be like, you don't don't say anything about this. Like, you know, this is between us, me and this 300 people, 500 people yeah. you know, in another town. Don't
1: tweet this. Right.
2: I do. I'd say that. But, you know, I've become a little bit more diplomatic and a little more self-aware about why I'm doing things. Why am I doing it? You know, there were times where I would process things on stage about relationships and stuff. And the times that there have been trouble have really been around jokes, you know, more so than, than talking candidly. Like if I was dating someone or married to somebody, I did a joke about sex that, you know, does not necessarily reflect our sex lives, but maybe the, the kernel of the joke happened uh, in the relationship, there would be sort of like, if a wife says, you know, could you not talk about ass play? Yeah. You know, like, (laughs) okay, maybe I can make that concession. It's not necessary, even though we don't do it that often. My wife's always asking me that, (laughs) you know, it's not my thing, but like, it was like, if it happened once or twice or whatever, you know, there, there, you know, something that's transgressive for you personally at a moment, you know, is loaded up comedically too, you know? But, yeah, there have been issues. You know, my, ex, my second ex-wife just, you know, won't even you know, sit down and have coffee with me to uh, get some closure. I mean, obviously there's closure. I haven't seen her in almost a decade, and, you know, she wants nothing to do with me. And that's largely because she felt
1: betrayed by you talking about certain things in your that's relationship. That's not
2: why we broke up, no. no. But, you know, after the fact, you know, when I was devastated, you know, I wouldn't shut up about it. Right. And, you know, that's the only way I could process something. And I think it was helpful. I don't know if it was funny. I don't know if it was entertaining. It was engaging. But those jokes are cynical. You know, that that becomes sort of the, the real issue about those kind of jokes is that where am I at personally now? You know, how cynical am I and, and how much of that cynicism is genuine or how much of it is, you know, me just hiding my emotions? Is there a way to talk about the issues in relationship with other people that isn't inherently dismissive or cynical or trivializing you know in a shocking way
1: Mm. and then is it strange for you to feel that people around you that you don't know feel as if they know you very well and they know things about you that
2: generally only friends know about each other you know does that make you feel uncomfortable do you feel as if I feel okay about it you know it's been a long time since you know I choose to do this the way I do it so yeah they know me talking about me but do they know me living with me? You know, whatever their idea is, it's still based on me talking about me with few pauses in, in a tone that that I use to talk publicly. Uh, do they know me? You know, sitting with my cat or playing guitar or wondering about a rash.
1: They feel as if they do. Well, it, they
2: hear me talk about it, yeah. but like, would they be there for me if I was doing that? Yeah. I don't know. And that I think that really is the difference between intimacy and telling the story of a thing that happened yes
1: there was a funny moment one of many funny moments in your tv series when you thought you had cancer in your lip oh yeah and uh it turned out to be what we call an ulcer what you guys call a canker sore yeah that you had blackened with licorice oh yeah 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 and you get it diagnosed on stage eventually but yeah by saying is there a doctor here because you're freaking out you think yeah. you got cancer yeah that's is that in any way based on um, an incident or? yeah yeah
2: the 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 mouth thing was really yeah i don't know that i got diagnosed on stage yeah you know, i think that was uh, that was the fictionalization but yeah the root of that was yeah that happened i just went to the doctor for a thing the, the other day i don't do it a lot but when i do do it it's pretty dire you know in that moment yeah uh, of course uh, but then you know whatever you know you get older it's like it's, something's gonna catch yeah how do you like getting older I'm okay with it. Are you? Yeah, pretty good so far. Uh, it's hard to accept um, certain things. It's just hard to, you, it's sort of like the, the transition from life to death, I think, is tricky for most yes. people.
1: <laughs> Isn't it, though? Um, yeah. And When you, I think about it. <laughs> right. But do you find yourself thinking about it more? You, you and Louis were, you mentioned
2: um, the book Denial of Death. Right. Which you said was uh, an important book for you. I've been talking about it more lately, this, you know, because it sort of explains, you know, populist momentum, but it also, it's really about an almost innate bordering on genetic need for people to feel part of something bigger than themselves to give their life meaning. And if you don't have that, you know, and it can be as simple as a, you know, a sports team, a band, you know, religion, whatever it is, you know, something tribal, a community. But it makes sense because the existential terror, of you know, realizing profoundly without any specific thing to hang your hope on that you're going to die is a lot to take. So I just found that idea, the concept of that, which was rooted in uh, exploration of Freud's theory of transference was where the it's rooted in fairly classical psychology I guess and I'm no intellectual or I'm no scholar but but like for me to to understand that was a big piece of the puzzle but i also go the other direction which is like if something large is happening and i feel it threatening i i I make myself the center of it all Mm -hmm. and that needs to be tempered like i need to wrangle that in
1: that's natural though isn't it i mean everyone feels i guess
2: yeah but like you know you should move from that like and go like well other people need help and there's other people in more situations and then then the next thought shouldn't be like yeah but but i'm in trouble And then you have to realize, you know, what is your brain doing? Yeah. How do you survive with that, with that sense of panic? Mm. Panic is is an issue. The
1: worry is that if you focus on it too much, then you won't be able to get it out of your head at all. And I suppose part of what maybe constitutes a midlife crisis is when that ability to deny the fact that you are going to die one day suddenly becomes compromised. Well, yeah,
2: my, my producer uh, you know, pointed that out to me, that my reaction to what's happening, although it is terrifying, sort of coinciding with, um, you know, I was already going, like, what's, a, what's the point of everything? Like, there was a midlife element yeah. to my tone. Even though everything was going fairly well, uh, it wasn't quite enough, and it didn't satisfy these uh, deeper needs of meaning. Uh, and then like, you know, th- this thing happened politically and I'm like, see, we are fucked. Yeah. Yeah. It, it kind of <laughs> took it off of me a little bit, but, uh, the feelings were already starting to surface. Yeah. Um, but getting back to what you, what we were talking about before, uh, you know, my in- incentive for doing stand up was really like, I wanted, I thought that it was important. I thought that stand up was a way to express your ideas and to, to, you know, to facilitate having this. This stage, this platform, this this craft to, you know, to blow people's minds and to, you know, to do new things and to make people see things differently and to connect and to explore your own ideas in a very immediate, very pure way. It's just you talking. So that was my intent was to be a great stand-up, to be an important stand-up. And, you know, later as you get into the game and you start working a little bit, you do your TV appearances, the first few TV appearances, and you're like, you know, well, you should have your own show. You want to get a sitcom. So that was always kind of a way to make money, like, you know, if you could get that deal. So then you start thinking about yourself in terms of being a character. And, you know, I thought, well, I could do that. you know, I'm, But I didn't really know who my character was for a long time. And I had a couple of deals here and there. And then, you know, you hear other people and you see what network television does to people and, you know, how it compromises the deal and it kind of minimizes and boxes you in. So that never really happened for me. So by the time I did the IFC show... And this is the show Marin we're talking about. Right. I was approached by a production company, by Jim Serpico at uh, Apostle. And, you know, he said, I love the podcast. Is there something we can do with it? Is there an idea? I'm like, oh, I'm doing the podcast. You know, it's like, but is there like, and I'm like, yeah, how about a show about a guy who's failing and does, podcast?" He's it's like, that sounds great. So, you know, we sh- shot a pilot presentation and brought it around and IFC responded. So I did four seasons of a show, you know, completely in my control. Are you not doing more? No, but I didn't, I didn't see the point. There was not enough incentive to keep doing, to keep repeating it because it's very hard to not repeat. You know, once you build the world, just stay in it. You know, and jump the shark and jump it again. And you know, as long as everyone's you know getting flush on it, and it, there, that wasn't the situation. So we did the show, and I was happy with it, and I, I thought it was great. And you know, in the last season, we really took some chances, and I was like, this is it. There's no reason to do more of these. Mm-hmm.
1: You're doing another show now. Um, what's, GLOW? Yeah, GLOW. What does it, what's the acronym stand for?
2: Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling.
1: Yeah, what's that all about? And that comes out later this year, right?
2: In June.
1: Yeah, on Netflix.
2: Yeah, that was an acting job, which is something I wanted to do. I wanted to try to act and not be me, which, you know, I'm going to probably be some variation of me. But No, but, like, it was just, I, you know, I got done with my show. I wasn't looking for anything. Yeah, I, I, there's really a part of me that's sort of like, I just want out. All of it oh really oh.
1: i've heard you say that before i'm always curious how serious how, am i how serious you are and and what your life would be like then if- who
2: knows but it, you know i'm one of these people that are like oh you could never do nothing i'm like no, i'm not sure you know like i you know what would you do would you travel probably not so you- I, I think i probably just need a nice chunk of time really off you know we've been feeding that podcast twice a week a new show every week for you know almost 10 years now it's fairly intensive you know I'm i sure. gotta show up for that So no matter what happens, you know, no matter how much time I have off of Marin or any or stand up or anything else is that, you know, the job, my base job and my base love or passion is the podcast and that there's never been a break, which is fine. But I wonder what it would be like to have nothing to do. I probably go nuts. I probably nap too much, jerk off too much and eat too much and wander around in a needy way and, you know, end up a mark again, you know, yeah, on the streets. But uh, the question? Oh, glow. I you know I I just gotten done. I was sort of like looking to take some time off, and then I got this. Uh, someone in the management office found this project that uh, was going on. I didn't know any of it bef- before. I got this. I got the sides. I got these three or four pages of this script, and y- you know it was sent through my agent. And I wasn't looking for anything, but I just read him. I'm like, I could do this guy. I knew nothing about the show, but I just read the lines, and I'm like. This is There's something about this. I could do this. And I put it on tape right here because they weren't doing live auditions. They didn't ask for me. It was just out in the world and they hadn't cast it yet. So I put on a Lacoste shirt and I went down to the women who own the eyeglasses place and I found some aviator frames that I thought were 80s-ish because it's some late mid-80s, late 80s. And uh, I sat here with my personal trainer, the woman who's also an actress. Uh-huh. And my part-time assistant held an iPhone. And I did three versions of the audition, and I sent them off, and I got the part. Good one. Yeah, I was completely surprised. Yeah, but I just—I—I I, rarely happens where I'm like, "I this this material is good." Yeah. But it, the, it's based on a, a short lived. It was a, a TV show. The it was a real thing. It was a women's wrestling league that was sort of put together uh, on the coattails of the popularity of the first wave of professional wrestling. Right or the, it would have been probably the second or third wave, but the modernization of professional wrestling with Hulk Hogan and those guys in the 80s. Someone had the idea, let's make a TV show with women wrestlers. And it was a real thing, and it lasted a few years. And uh, this is based on that. All they really got the rights to were, was the name, not any of the real characters. Or you know, There's a documentary about the real glow, and the women are still around. One of them just reached out to me last night. She does a podcast. Mm-hmm. But I, I did no research. Because there is, I think my character is sort of a composite character, but I just went by the script and, you know, by my understanding of who he was. This was a guy who knew nothing about wrestling. He was sort of a B-movie director that had some success, but it was floundering. And, you know, his own worst enemy to a certain degree had some addiction issues and was kind of a a character. And uh, he was brought in by somebody, a rich kid who was an heir to some money, who to, to do this project. This kid, this rich kid said, I wanna do a wrestling TV show, will you do it? Will you direct it and put it together? And if you do, I'll fund your next movie. So it's really, that was the incentive for this character. Like I'm gonna make my next horror movie if I just do this show for this kid. So I'm saddled with this job of creating a wrestling show, knowing nothing about wrestling. Is it a drama then,
1: or a comedy thing? Comedy? It rides
2: that line. Uh, it's yeah. a, you know that indefinable space, but they're very meticulous about the time yeah. and about the the outfits. Alison but no- Brie is
1: your co-star. She's in great. Yeah,
2: fantastic. It's a it's a nuanced character, her character, and it's it's a hard thing to do to play ambition and desperation simultaneously. Yeah, um, and she, it was really great. I was very moved by it all, watching other people act and watching the physicality of wrestling and being around these women is very, there were times where I was like, you know, choked up by it, by just the engagement of it all.
1: I got you a present. You may already have this. How familiar
2: are you with Philip Larkin? I don't know him. I know the name, but I don't know his poems. He's someone that... Wait, is he the guy that did Parents Fuck You Up? There you go. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. Yeah,
1: yeah, I love that poem. They may not mean to, but they do. Yeah. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. Yeah, yeah. This be the verse. It's great. He's a, a, a complicated character, Philip Larkin, but his poems are amazing. I mean, he, like few other people that I can think of came up with really pithy, quite bleak lines about what it is to be alive. This one line in a poem called Dockery and Son, life is first boredom, then fear. Hmm. And that's his distillation of the whole business of being alive.
2: Uh, yeah, I recently wrote something I've been doing on stage. The 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 space between despair and orgasm is hard to fill and yeah. <laughs> in the long run. Not comparing myself, but it struck me as familiar.
1: <laughs> but I thought you might enjoy some of that stuff.
2: Thank you very much. Very thoughtful. I Not appreciate it. I also
1: got you some cinnamon toothpicks. Oh, yeah. Have you ever had these? They're quite strong.
2: Yeah, I like these. You there was t- always a story. There, and several kids had them. When they used to have these toothpicks. I forget what they call fire sticks or something when we were kids. that were just drenched in cinnamon oil. And I've talked to more than one or two people that have, when they were kids, they had them and then touched their dicks. And right. It, Yeah.
1: And it got fiery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I've given them to a couple of people I've done the podcast with. And they get addicted to them? As a lame gift. I don't know if anyone's ever got addicted to them. I liked them. I got semi-addicted after I'd been introduced to them. Mm. And it was partly because the person who gave them to me said, oh, this is what
2: Bowie used to give up smoking. (laughs) I love Bowie. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. uh, I used to do that all the time. Yeah, that's why I started smoking Marlboro's because of Keith and I started drinking Jack Daniel's because of Keith.
1: Right. Obviously, you are a massive music fan. Music's an important part of your life. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know what the albums are that you keep going back to when when the chips are down. If you need a, a pick me up, if you need something comfortingly familiar that, you know, backwards and forwards, what are some of the records you go back to? Throughout my life. Yeah, like the ones who, that have just been the solid bedrock
2: of your appreciation It's of weird. Music. They, they actually change. Like lately, I've been listening to a lot of Lee Morgan, which is a new thing for me, but I, I'm putting it on a lot. I don't know Lee Morgan. What's He's the, a trumpet player, uh-huh. like a jazz trumpet player that his life ended tragically. He was pretty young. His wife shot him, but I didn't know much about him. Um, but other records, like I, I, sometimes I go back to Eno. Oh, I just talked to him for this podcast. Oh, my God. I'd like to talk to him. How was that? It was initially
1: tricky because we were talking earlier on about people who've had a large body of work that's been often discussed. He made it quite clear to me before we met that he wasn't really up for going and the history digging up the past. Mm. And I think he probably was, well, he was aware that I was a Bowie nut because I'd done a sketch about Bowie that's on mm-hmm. YouTube and he'd seen it and liked it, I'm glad to say. But I think he was wary of just me asking nonstop questions about what was it like doing this and that album with Bowie or whatever. How'd it go? Well, we had two sessions because he's very strict about only allotting an hour to each person that he meets, and he mm. meets them in his studio in West London. Mm. And I didn't realize that. I thought we were going to talk for, I don't know how you do it,
2: but... Um, However long. I, yeah. well, sometimes people have time limits.
1: Yes, of course, and you, uh, and you respect them and you observe them. But um, I was able to get another session with him a few months later, and that was a lot better. And actually, by then we were able to circuitously go back and revisit some of his earlier stuff, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. We, yeah,
2: you got kind of, with David Byrne, you got to kind of trick him into it. Yeah. Because I talked to David, he's like that too. That's right. But if you go around it, if you talk about whatever they want to talk about, the new stuff, and then you go, well, that's kind of like, and like if they're, you can tr- trick him into it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I go back to Eno you know, for, uh, for comfort and Which transportation. Ones? Taking Tiger Mountain. Oh, that's a good one, isn't it? Yeah. But I find a lot of comfort in his music. And mm. I also like his, you know, the weird way that he interpreted the Velvet Underground, who is another one of the bands that I'll go to, mm-hmm. specifically Live in 69. Um, and I'll go to Bowie sometimes, you know, I, you know, for, for that grounding. Which bits of Bowie? I'll listen to the song Heroes in and of itself a lot. And then, um, boy, there's so much, isn't there?
1: Yeah. Hunky Dory is... I maybe. like Hunky
2: Dory. I listen to that. It's so solid. Yeah. It's like Moondance. You know what I've been listening to is that live, the BBC box set. Oh, yeah. It's astounding how tight that fucking band was yeah. without any production, just like in a radio studio. Well, that he did a great version of Round and Round, Chuck Berry. Yeah, 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 yeah. God rest him. I just got that recently. Mm. And then... Um, there's like some newer ones, like I, you know, I, like I, I kind of mix it up, you know. I, I've recently gotten into uh, Jason Molina a little bit from uh, Songs Ohio and the Magnolia Electric Company. He died from alcohol fairly young, and not many people know. There's a couple of his songs. I do like that place where you're transported you know and and i like that Eno's re interpretation of the velvet underground in terms of the layers of sound like you know how like i think relatively unintentionally you know lou and maureen and doug and i guess john at times you know had this weird very specific layers of rhythm that you can actually hear how you know interpreted it Mm -hmm. into way he layered sound like you know his understanding of the velvet underground i don't think you know lou could have known but like what made him attract him and also what compel Bowie about them. I like that world of 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 music when I need to be transported. But if I need to rock out, you know, there's Zeppelin, there's Stones. But like I I've, I've been really mixing it up because I've got a lot of records now and I'm a lot of new stuff. So lately I I'm definitely listening to a lot of new stuff. Do you make a lot of playlists? I don't make a lot, but like I I seem to evolve the, you know, the running playlist, yeah. you know, if I am running, like evolving run like right now. Fly Away by Lenny Kravitz, Uh Farewell Transmission by that guy, Jason Molina, Songs, Ohio, She's the One by Springsteen, Cherie by Suicide, Walking with Jesus by Spaceman 3, Born to Run by Springsteen. I integrated Springsteen because I was going to talk to him.
1: You put Born to Run on your running playlist. Yeah,
2: Well, you know, when I read his book, it made me appreciate (laughs) it more. Yeah. But then I got got, uh, Beyond Belief by Elvis Costello. Oh, God, that's good. Candy's Room by Springsteen. I got Somebody, first Aerosmith record. I've got "Shine a Light" by Spiritualized. Mm-hmm. I like that spaceman guy. Jay yeah, spaceman yeah. Guy. Have you had him on WTF? No, I don't know anything. He's about He's had him. quite an interesting life. Yeah, I, I think I, I, I. He's a very, you know, uh, very pro-drug. Yeah, I'm <laughs> the,
1: fascinated by your playlist. Go and quote me some
2: more. Well, I have a pre-show playlist when I used to play. You know, before I went on stage. Let's see if I still have one. Stuart Lee was always
1: very careful with his pre-show playlists and always felt that it was an important part of
2: getting the audience in the right headspace. Well, yeah, like this one has Dolly Dagger by Jimi Hendrix, Big Sky by The Kinks, "I'm oh, Board by uh, Iggy. Oh, here's another pre-show. Cherie, Walking With Jesus, Live Wire by ACDC, Tears of a Clown uh-huh, by uh, English Beat, though. Oh, okay. I love their version. Ah, Tears of a Clown. Yeah. Yeah, that's Going da-dum. down and down. I love that one. Yeah, uh, Showbiz love- Blues by Fleetwood Mac, Beyond Belief again. I'm Jealous by Ike and Tina Turner. Uh, Chinese Rocks by Johnny Thunders. Waves of Fear by Lou Reed. Not a good choice for pre-show music. I don't even know that song. That's off The Blue Mask.
1: Oh, I've, I haven't got The Blue
2: Mask. I've got like three copies of Is it. Is it really good? Oh, my God. It's great. It's dark as hell. Good one. Um, reasons to be beautiful by Hole, the wonton song by zeppelin down payment blues by acdc which used to be the opening theme for wtf right uh,
1: don't i don't tell
2: anybody we told we pulled it all
1: <laughs> i only realized recently that the lock the gates is you in almost famous yeah um playing a angry Promoted. promoter
2: yeah i was playing a lot of angry parts
1: <laughs> and what are the songs that you can't listen to without crying Or feeling like you're going to cry. Oh,
2: yeah. Well, I know just one, really. Yeah. Heroes almost get me there, but Time Has Told Me by uh, Nick Drake. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about it gets me choked. Yeah,
1: I know. It's weird, isn't it, with music? You can literally just think about it. Time Has Told Me. Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. continue. Rosie, Rosie, don't just stand there. No, we're not going the long route today. I'm sorry. It's too freezing. All right. You take your time. I'm going this way. No good looking at me like that. I feel like C-3PO in the desert. Well, there we go. That was uh, my conversation with Mark Maron great pleasure to meet him and to find him so personable thanks once again to Louis Theroux for uh, putting us in contact and indeed to Mark himself for giving up his time while I was in Los Angeles much appreciated (sighs) Jonathan Demme died damn it I love Jonathan Demme's films So many of them have been, like, pivotal moments in in my cultural life and remind me of happy times in my childhood. Perhaps you don't know that much about Jonathan Demme and his films. I mean, he was such an unusual director because he made films in almost every conceivable genre and they were always totally different from each other, except for the fact that they had very memorable and likable characters in them even when the characters themselves were mean and scary like Ray Liotta's character in something wild they were still charming in some way and very memorable I mean it doesn't hurt that he worked with so many brilliant actors And got the best out of them every time. Ray Liotta's so good in Something Wild, as is Jeff Daniels, as is Melanie Griffiths. She's maybe as good as she's ever been, although I did like her in Working Girl. (laughs) Um, But she's great in uh, Something Wild. And, of course, the other thing that was so important to Jonathan Demme was music. And uh, a lot of the same sort of music that I really like. There's a little bit of The Fall playing... ...in a scene in Silence of the Lambs, I think towards the end of that film... ...where Clarice is uh, about to confront Buffalo Bill... ...and uh, you can hear Hip Priest playing in the background... ...and in Something Wild, there's a great reunion scene... ...they go back to a a school reunion... ...and the band playing in the hall are the Feelys... ...a great kind of um, new wave band... ...that I got into after seeing that film. And then, of course, there was Jonathan Demme's long-standing relationship with Robin Hitchcock. He did a concert film called uh, Storefront Hitchcock in 1998. Just a very intimate record of a performance of um, Robin playing his lovely songs... ...and doing his kind of of stream-of-consciousness chats in between... And Robin Hitchcock plays a small part in the remake that Jonathan Demme did of the uh, Manchurian Candidate. I was about to say the Mancunian Candidate. That would be a very different film. They operated on me fucking brain to make me mad for it. And now I just fucking... Sometimes they can just fucking trigger it and I'm mad for it all over the fucking place. That is very reductive and racist. Sorry. What else would I direct you to of Jonathan Demme's? I mean, they're all pretty good. Swimming to Cambodia, that was a good one. A film of Spalding Gray's one-man show about his experience playing a small part in the film The Killing Fields. Spalding Gray also no longer with us, sadly. But he was someone who I really got into for a while. Uh, not totally dissimilar from someone like David Sedaris, I suppose a brilliant and entertaining monologist monologist guy who does monologues and of course the the film that jonathan demme is perhaps best known for well no i suppose that would be philadelphia or silence of the lambs but as far as i'm concerned it was all about stop making sense the talking heads <laughs> oh my god i'm going to cry <laughs> Sorry, listeners. (laughs) It's pathetic, isn't it? I'm getting to that age where it doesn't take much to set me off. I apologise. It just reminds me of my... (laughs) ...of when we were... (sighs) If someone presses the sentimental button, you better watch out. Because it's going to get awkward. (sighs) Stop making sense. I mean, you know, I don't have to say too much. Such a a, a great record of an extraordinary band. Uh, 1983, I think those concerts were filmed. And David Byrne, they're just all on top of their game, you know. And that band, that expanded band with Alex Weir and Bernie Worrell and Lynn Mabry. Steve Scales and Chris and Tina doing their Tom, Tom Club section. And, oh, my goodness, so many talented people. David Byrne himself looking so magnificent and the square suit. I really did my best to um, imitate that look for a while. I wore one of my dad's suits that was too big for me, obviously, as a, a young teen. And I, I would do my top button up and convince myself that I was like David Byrne. Albeit David Byrne in the wrong aspect ratio. <laughs> but it was fun, though. Yeah, you know, and I haven't even seen Melvin and Howard. That's that's shameful, isn't it? But I, I bought it today. I ordered it online, along with a copy of Swimming to Cambodia, which I haven't seen for years. And I look forward to uh, revisiting those films again. So thanks, Jonathan Demi. And uh, until next time, listeners, take care. I love you. Bye! God, it's cold. Like and
2: subscribe. Let's